Hi there, everybody. My name is Scott Grayson, and you're listening to Mentally Unscripted, the podcast where my co-host Stefan and I inspire you to think more clearly and have better conversations about the topics most impacting us. When you ride along with us, we'll take you on a journey that will show you there's always more than one way to look at an issue. You'll learn to think critically about the world and how to challenge the narratives those in power want you to believe. You won't always agree with us, but that's the point to learn that we can have deep conversations and learn from each other, no matter how different we are. In this episode, Stefan and I look back at 2021 to identify the tools and insights that helped us most in last year. We limited our review to five each, so we missed many things we could have included, but we think this list is a fun and informative tool anyone can use to have a better 2022. As always, we want to build a community around Mentally Unscripted, so share this episode with your friends and interact with us at mentallyunscripted.com. And remember, the conclusion you reach is less important than the process you follow to get there. 22, and we are live. Scott, how how's 2022 treating you so far? Yeah, uh, five days in, and I can't complain, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I, w- I was really hoping that uh, life would just suddenly stop being so absurd when the calendar flipped over to 2022, but that didn't happen. So, um, Oh, that is yeah. a shame. That is a real shame. <laughs> so, oh man. Yeah. Maybe your expectations, your base rate expectations are way too high. Right. Uh, you yeah. know I mean? we, we are going to talk about base rates in this episode, but yeah, I think so. So I don't know. What do you think at the beginning of 2023 in our first podcast episode of 2023, are we going to say the world got more or less absurd in last year. What do you think? Uh, okay, I'm optimistic. I came into this year optimistic, and and that has to be for all the right reasons, right? I was hopped up on champagne and God knows what else. So, um, no, I mean, I, I I legitimately feel optimistic. Maybe it's because after 18 months of COVID, and I I feel the exhaustion of everybody just ready to get back to a new normal. That I just feel like this year has got to got to be it. It has to be it. I don't I don't know. How do you how do you feel? I, you know, I have my fingers crossed um, that we are certainly heading in the right direction. Uh, I heard uh, someone on CNN call the cloth masks face decorations the other day. Uh, you know, Fauci has admitted that there's a difference between in the hospital being treated for COVID and just being in the hospital and for something else and having COVID. Uh, so it, it seems like a lot of the narrative that's been going around in our circle for the since the summer of 2020 is finally starting to catch up to the mainstream. Uh, you mean, so I guess it's you true. Mean the conspiracy theories are finally <laughs> coming true. Is exactly. Exactly. So um, I, I guess there is help. And I, you know, and I guess this just proves that, you know, politics really does follow society, right? The, the attitudes change in society first, and then the politicians come dragging along or get dragged along kicking and screaming, uh, you know, a year or two later. So like, like, like toddlers, right? Exactly. (laughs) When, 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 when they realized that gay marriage was coming, whether they liked it or not, they all changed their tune and suddenly started supporting (laughs) it. So maybe it's the same thing here. Once they realize that people are just a little over the masks and all of that stuff, um, you know, maybe they're going to start changing their tune. So that, that's a good thing. I I think that's a good thing. So, so are we both saying we're optimistic about the fortunes of 2022? (laughs) I'm optimistic about COVID. (laughs) <laughs> the narrative getting better. I'm just, okay. I'm very curious to see what's going to take its place. Yeah. Uh, well, it could be, uh, you know what? I don't even, I don't even want to try and, and use my imagination on what could be thrown at us next. It's the most dire, going to destroy our fates kind of uh, Hollywood apocalyptic 
crap that that's going to be thrown at us. I don't even want to think about that. Right, right. I, I know we both think that climate change is uh, going to be teed up here pretty soon, but you know they may take another swing at something else here. Um, yeah, who knows? In, in the who knows? We, you know, maybe in twenty twenty two, everyone's going to hear us put our uh, come up with with uh, tinfoil hats two dot something stronger, something better. I don't know. Right. Well, that's the conversation we started having a little bit yesterday with uh, Jamie about how yeah. it's just getting too hard to <laughs> to oh even parse the news anymore. Uh, okay. All right. So this is actually a great thing. We, I, I was, uh, Scott and I were going back and forth uh, on Signal talking about this new platform, Getter. I think it's called Getter, right? Or is it, Getter. G-E-T-T-R. Yeah. So I, I see this come through. And of course, if if you're not on Getter and you're probably hearing about it through mainstream media, it is an absolute right wing nut job platform for only right wings and nut jobs. Is I think is that an accurate description if you're hearing about it through Yeah. I mean it, pretty much anything that is remotely supporting Trump, you know, so just imagine yeah. Yeah. any every adjective that's gonna get applied to it is has been applied well, to this. Well, and then what's what's interesting about that is that if you if you read the title, it's it's free speech. That's what they're really you know what they what they title it as, right? And so I, I heard about this, and and I'm I'm going through, and I, and I I created a profile. That I don't think I've actually done much with it, but then I got a little bit of information through my my information network, my little birds, who said, well, there may be some uh, some bad ties to some people in the CCP. Which, of course, is I can't imagine something to be the opposite of free speech, right? Given what they do in Hong Kong and what they want to do in Taiwan and mainland. So then I, I share this with Scott, and Scott goes back to me, well, that's that may be fake news. And so he sends <laughs> me another article. So then we start going back and forth, and, and I'm just laughing because I, I trust Scott to, to, to put on his thinking cap, and I know that he does. I think he has the same trust of me, and yet we're trying to figure out what is the sky blue? Like, what's true here? It's really difficult to do. Right. And and I don't think any of our information sources necessarily make it easier. No, definitely you know, not. I, yeah. So, yes, we're 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 struggling a little bit with uh with with reality other than what we literally can see and feel and touch. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I think we landed on the uh, idea that, well, either the NSA or the CCP is spying on us. So <laughs> does it really that matter? That was the best yeah. one. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. Does it really Someone's matter? spying on us. No matter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Who's who's in the best position to do damage to us with our information? Maybe we're going to go the other direction. So and, That's and, right. and I don't know who that is but oh boy oh boy well should we should we get started on the on the uh the content of what we're going to be sharing today yeah let's go for it all right so scott and i thought it'd be a great opportunity as we start 2022 in our first podcast of this year to discuss what we learned in 2021 and uh first we were going to talk specifically about tools and then we kind of expanded it to what are the ideas our top five ideas for 2021 so we independently went out and kind of came up with a couple of ideas and then we came back and funny enough we actually had two um two ideas that were overlap and then we have a a, a couple of ideas that um that are not we can discuss as well so without further ado scott what is the tools or ideas the top one that you have on the list that overlaps with mine okay so the first one i'm, I'm going to change it up a little bit i'm not going to start with the tool i'm going to start with the concept and this idea of link, link note taking um and it's a way link note taking for you folks who don't know is, is it's just what it sounds like it's you can take notes and you have the capacity to hyperlink them with each other you can tag them so it takes your your knowledge base like is what I call it, like a, your your whole system of notes, and it's and it kind of makes it three dimensional. So it's not just a linear set of notes. Um, you can really reference 
uh, around. You can get central concepts. Um, you can get to them very easily, uh, or you can just pull up a random note and just start following the links in the note. And uh, it helps you to recall ideas, helps you generate new ideas. So it's pretty interesting. And I discovered this, I read a book called, now I can't remember the name of it. It's something like how to take smart notes, how to take smart notes. That's it. And it focuses on a, I don't know if I'm saying this right as Zettelkasten, Zettelkasten. Uh, it's a, a German word, <laughs> Farfignugan. I don't know. Um, yeah. But the whole idea is that there was this uh, author in Germany who kept very meticulous notes and he did it with index cards. He didn't have a, an electronic tool and he figured out ways to cross-reference all of these cards and everything. And he just, he was a prolific writer, was very smart. And so this has caught on. And the tool we're using for this is called Obsidian, which is, um, I don't know, is Obsidian, is it technically open source? I'm not sure. I, I think it is. It is. It's, it's yeah. free. It's free, or at least there's a version of it that's free, and there's right. probably uh, other versions that are not. Right, but then you can also pay, and I'm not sure if there's any differences. I'm on a paid version, but I'm not sure if there's mm -hmm. any differences. But then there are some features that you can add on that are paid for, like the sync, so you can sync your database across right. devices and whatnot. Um, but this is a really great tool. It's got tons of plugins, so it's very customizable, but it, it does just that. It uses markdown language, um, so you can type in your notes, you can put links to other notes in there, you can put tags on them, uh, you can import attachments. Um, there's a feature in there for mind maps, if you're into that, or um, Kanban um, task lists, which I've been using. Uh, so it, yeah, it's really good. And I've been using it to help me catalog my mental models. Um, and the, the power there is I can just do one mental model per note, and then I can link the notes together depending on the subject area. So all the economics mental models will be linked together. You know, all the physics mental models will be linked together. Um, I can also link if I read a good book or a good article and I read something in there that that I think is um, a good example of a particular mental model, then I can take the note and then link it to that mental model note. Um, so yeah, pretty powerful. Uh, and the more I use it, <laughs> one thing I realize is it can turn into a mess really quick. You definitely have to stay on top of the organization. But other than that, um, oh, and it's great for content creation too. When we're taking notes for the podcasts, um, for blog posts, it's, and I've started using it for my legal practice too when I'm researching legal topics. Um, it's just, it's a great way to pull everything together, I think. So what, what do you, I know you had Obsidian as your top one too. Yeah. So um, we, we had talked offline. I remember asking Scott, this was later in the year uh, in 2021. I, I mentioned to him, I said, you know, I, I need, I need something to help me gather all these ideas. And he suggested Obsidian and it clicked on me on day two. So day one, day one, I downloaded, I'm, tr I'm trying to understand the structure and day two, I realized this ability to connect all of these ideas. And then interestingly enough, about two months later, I started a book called Where uh, Great Ideas Come From, I think it's the name, or Big Ideas. I, I believe the author is Stephen Johnson. And he actually mapped the origin of this, this concept back to what is called the commonplace book, uh, which was, as, as Scott, I think you mentioned this idea of your own personal encyclopedia, right? Your own personal reference document. And um, there was there were 
sort of two ideas that went with that. The ability to actually have a document to be able to write ideas, but then the reference side of it. So being able to connect all these ideas. And so that's what these tools allow us to do. And it's it's really almost difficult, for, I think, for people to grasp how valuable it is to have your own document, which is taking all of the ideas, especially if you're in the information space where you can you can hear an idea, maybe you know, um, out of the blue, you hear some concept and it's kind of interesting, but you don't really know what to make of it. Right. But it's related to other, it's, it's semi-related, perhaps it's not even related. Right. But it's an interesting concept, but you can put it in there. And then the idea of being able to come back to these notes, these ideas that would be easily forgotten, um, but be able to come back there and rediscover it. So that's another idea that Steven Johnson talks about sort of this, this explosion of ideas or combination of ideas that can happen with these types of tools, it's its really magnificent. So, uh, so I guess what I would say to anybody who's listening to this, if you don't have a tool that allows you to both document and also reference, be able to create the linkage, uh, this is something to think about for 2022 that I think would really just be a, a huge benefit to anybody. Uh, just a great tool, uh, get your ideas on paper and allows you to... Uh, to create new ideas, uh, be inventive, which I think a lot of people want to be creative. Um, they, they, they want it as an expression. And I, I find it to be an amazing tool. So huge find conceptually and also the actual tool itself. So huge plug for that. And no, we're not endorsed by Obsidian. Uh, we're not paid by Obsidian yet. Hopefully someday we will. But uh, no, this is, <laughs> we're not being paid yet. We're not paid sponsors. Right. If anyone out there is familiar with, um, uh, what is it, Rome, Rome Notes? Um, mm-hmm. it's a similar concept. It's just a, yes. a, a slightly different implementation and much cheaper. Um, yep. so, okay. So number two, do you want to go ahead and take number two? Yeah. So uh, interestingly, as I, as I mentioned, we had two that overlapped and the second one we have here is Substack. And I think to people that are in the publishing space and the online space are, are likely familiar with it. Substack is a site uh, that allows you to create a newsletter, um, but it, it has some other integrated features. So it's a standalone website that you can you can share the link to, and um, it can also, as as we've used it for, we've turned it into a uh, place to host our podcast. So it's it's taking a lot of the various features as creators that we want to uh, that we need. That that we need for our uh, to be able to put what we're um, what we're sharing creating out there, but it's it, it takes all those tools and and builds it into a, a single platform. And you know, conceptually, why is this why is this useful? Well, there's now multiple methods that we can use to to get out to people. Be it the newsletter, if you haven't subscribed, go subscribe. Um, be it that it's an actual area we can post. It also allows us then to have uh, feedback from the community. We can go there and you can add comments. To, to what we've shared, either the newsletter or the podcast. Uh, and, it, and it's multimedia ready. So we can, we can uh, with the newsletters that we posted and the posts that we post directly on the site, we can include all the links to everything that we want. So it's becoming a, if you will, a commonplace book and a, a, a place of record for all of Mentally Unscripted. So it's, it's just a super powerful tool for, for us. Um, and what you're seeing it enable um, is the rise of sort of the citizen journalist uh, with a with a paid subscription model. So uh, examples of that would be someone like a Matt Taibbi or a Glenn Greenwald, both of whom have worked at uh, larger publications. So I think you know Rolling Stone for Matt, uh, Glenn worked at the um, uh, New York Times, uh, and they're able to use these platforms to use to to, to communicate directly with an audience but to also be paid for the work that they do. Something that seems really, really simple 
2021 or in this case 2022 but but to date was was actually not really well integrated so now you have a subscription model that you can use on on Substack uh, which is which is fantastic it's it's a great example and I'll, I'll you know want to turn it over to you Scott to hear your thoughts on it but it's it's a great example of how you can continue to see innovation in in what could be what many of us just saw as, as sort of a dead space or a space that really wasn't going to see a lot of innovation. I mean, for years, we've had blogs. For years, we've had newsletters. For years, we've had podcast platforms. Uh, for years, you've been able to drop a, a Stripe little bit of code into your website and potentially take payments. But they were able to to, to aggregate all this together, create a really seamless experience. And uh, I think the numbers for Substack are, are tremendous. They're doing extremely well. So it's it's a great example of a tool that seems like you wouldn't have expected to be so valuable, and yet uh, here I am singing its praises. So, what what were your thoughts on Substack, and why did you list it as a as a tool? It's an example of addition by subtraction. Um, it's very bare bones. You don't have a lot of leeway towards uh, altering your the layout, the look and feel. There's a little bit that you can do, but generally it's it's pretty flat. Um, it doesn't offer you a lot of fancy pop-ups and graphics and um, forms and things like that. Um, but it does exactly what we needed to do for the podcast, which is get the podcast published and to also publish uh, corresponding articles and news in the newsletter. And it, it brings it all in one spot. I mean, before we had, well, we started off with a WordPress website and then we moved over to a uh, hosting service that was for podcasts specifically. But then in addition to that, we had sp- Buzzsprout, which actually hosted the podcast. So that's two different places we had to go for one for the website, one for the podcast. And then we had an iWeber email list. So that's another, a third place. And now it's it's all in one place. And we don't have to sit there fiddling around with HTML and um, trying to write scripts and code snippets or anything. It's It's just all there. And so that's that's the big, that's the big plus for me, because I just don't feel like we need for what we're trying to do, I don't feel like we need a highly customizable site for the podcast. And I'm, I'm guessing a lot of other podcasters are in the same space now. Now for my blog and for my law firm website, I'm still running on WordPress, but I want the customization there. I want to be able to have the pop-ups and the different different formats and the, the control over the color schemes and all of that. But for mentally unscripted, we don't want, we don't need it. We don't want it. Don't want the headache of having to deal with it. So Substack has, has really been a, a good find for that. And um, I think what you alluded to too is um, it, the, it, it just gives you the ability for paid subscriptions built in. You don't have to install any plugins or anything. Um, and if you don't have paid subscriptions, then it's free to use. Which you know what they say, right? If you're if you're using a product for free, you are the product. So I don't I haven't heard anything bad about Substack as far as being nefarious with your data or anything like that. Um, so, but you know we may may hear something but, in the but future. It's always right? a risk, yeah. right? Right. So we do um, also make sure that we keep our stuff backed up so that we have access to it. So if uh, you know Substack one day decides that it wants to start jumping on the censorship train and decides to start whacking people, uh, you know, we'll still have access to our data. We won't yeah. be dependent on Substack. And, and and that's the good thing too, right? You can build your email list in Substack, but you also need to make sure you back it up. So mm-hmm. if you do get whacked, you still you can still contact your your fans or your support group. That's right. So, you know, um, well, yeah. so I, I think I think I, I would say to anybody out there that's thinking about they they want to start a way to communicate with people, um, through any of these these channels, be it a podcast, be it a um, 
a newsletter, be it be it even a blog. I think all it's it's a great platform for that, and and definitely uh, definitely consider that if if that's something you're looking for. Uh, obviously, content is is what matters most. <laughs> These are just tools, uh, but it's a great tool. So done with tools, I think. Now uh, now we're on to ideas. So uh, 2021, 2020, uh, and we've had a crazy couple of years with COVID. The world's rules have changed. Our norms have changed. Uh, and, and so it's actually, I found it a little difficult to actually think about what were the bigger ideas. The tools, those came to mind pretty quickly. But some of these ideas, they took a little bit of time. So I'm, wondering, I'm curious if you share your first idea that, you, that was your top five um, and whether or not it, it was, you know, came to mind immediately or did you have to think about it a little bit? One came to mind immediately. Uh, the one that I think is a little more straightforward came to mind immediately. The other one, I, I had to fish it out. It's an idea that I've been working on. Um, if you folks remember, we had Patrick McFarlane on um, several episodes ago, uh, the host of Liberty Weekly. And um, I've contributed one article to him and I've talked to him about another series of articles that I'm interested in doing. And it's the idea of the myth of the rule of law mm-hmm. and how um, this concept of the rule of law is dead. And th- there wasn't a lot that happened this year that was really screaming that. But I think you can definitely look at several things that happen and start to pull this concept out that if we ever had the rule of law, it, it is in its death throes now. Um, so real quick, you know, the rule of law is this principle that we're a nation of laws, not of men, so that no person from the president on down to, you know, the, the lowliest, you know, bottom line worker, right? I don't want to, I don't want to throw any particular career choice under the bus there. So I'm not going to say one, but even the, the, the lowliest entry level worker, um, the right. newborn who just popped out of the womb two seconds ago, right? We're all subject to the same laws. Mm-hmm. And, but there's a structure, it, it, there's a structure uh, that, you know, we have one system that creates the laws. Uh, that's the legislature. We have the executive that enforces the laws. We have the judicial that interprets the laws. And when that process is done, I mean, the law is for the most part, I know that there's some exception to this, it's set and it doesn't really change. Um, and that's not hundred percent true. It can change, but we're not getting in. This isn't sixth grade civics. <laughs> Let's just, just say <laughs> there's a process there that establishes. That's good. I would fail. Yeah. Yes. And one example of an example that we saw in the last year of how this is just being ignored is the rent moratorium, Mr. Joe Biden's rent moratorium, the New York or the Supreme court had ruled that the mint rent moratorium was unconstitutional, meaning it violates the constitution. So you cannot do this. And Joe Biden, when, when the rent moratorium that was in place expired, he just went ahead and and extended it, even though the Supreme court had said no. And that is an example of a man saying, well, I don't care what the law is. I'm going to do what I want to do. And there's really no, there's, there's no exception to that. I mean, the law is the law and you should not be able to, uh, to just ignore it because you're the president or anyone else. And the reason why we call it a myth is there was an article written by a guy named John Hasness and this article, it's reprinted in Michael Malice's Anarchist Handbook and also a book called Anarchy and the Law by Edward Stringham. Um, but this is a, it's a really good analysis of this idea of rule of law and what it, what it does is it, it, it teaches you that, or it explains that in order to have legitimacy, the government has to create these fictions and convince people of them. And rule of law is one of those fictions, this idea that 
no one is above the law. So therefore you have to do what we tell you because we're not above the law and neither are you. Well, you know, we obviously see that that's not the case. And one of the big problems with that is that um, when the state has the monopoly over the legal system and it makes the law, then it can make the law in such a way so that it can exempt itself from the law. So we've seen this. Uh, One example I'm thinking of is when Congress changed the laws behind its um, reporting its stock market transactions or its investment transactions so that it's now much easier for them to trade on inside information. Whereas if Paul and I did the same thing, right, we could get in a, a lot of trouble. So when, when you control the legal system, you can you can manipulate it in ways that benefit you. So there really, there really is no rule of law there. And um, also as an extension, we have this argument that, you know, the law is objective, it's applied the same to everyone, but we know that's not true either, because depending on your political bent, you can view, two people can view the law in two very different ways. Um, so one example is um, there was a case, Supreme Court case, I think it was Fred Astaire Dance Studios, where they were, there was this older lady. Um, she was older, but she was still mentally competent, can make her own decisions and everything. And they, she took some dancing classes and they kept telling her how great of a dancer she was and kept getting her sign up with, for more advanced level classes and spending more and more money. And the problem was that she was terrible at dancing. <laughs> and so her family got involved. They sued the dance studio. Um, I'll, I'll look the case up and put it in notes. They sued the dance studio. So there's two ways you can look at this. You can say, well, you know, the dance studio, right? They were in a position of authority, right? Because they were the dance teachers. They were the ones who supposedly could identify talent and all that stuff. And they used that position of authority to uh, to defraud her, basically. Um, but the other way you can look at it is... No, she was competent. She knew what she was doing. Um, people were telling her she wasn't that good and she was ignoring them. And so she, she, um, she wasn't put under any duress to get enter into that contract. She did, she did it voluntarily. So the, the contract should be valid. So what that is, and, and there's really no right or wrong answer. It's just how you look at the situation. So the rule, so the law is, it's not objective, it's subjective. And we're going to see that, I think, coming up when the Supreme Court finally rules on these um, the vaccine mandates. Because where we're sitting right now is we've had one, one circuit court has said they're unconstitutional, another circuit court has said they're constitutional. Well, if the law's objective, you wouldn't have those splits like that. So, um, so that's an idea. I know that's a lot of legal mumbo jumbo to most people, and they probably don't care. But I think it's really interesting how the... <laughs> just this idea, anyone who listens to Michael Malice has probably heard this and he's, ex- he explains it a hell of a lot better than I have, but there, there are just these fictions, these mythologies that the state has to create in order to give itself credibility. And it has to do that because without credibility, all it has is brute force and there aren't enough cops and soldiers around to force the population to do what it wants. So these, these myths, these, uh, these stories, these, um, uh, what I'm, I keep just thinking myths, but you know, these legends, yeah. these legends, these, um, these constructs that the state has to create these in order to try to keep people convinced that it's legitimate. And so I've, I've gotten into this idea lately and I think it's very interesting and and I'm, I'm, I'm curious, is this something that originated in 2021 or is it something that's been going on longer than that? It just became more pronounced last year. No. So this myth of the rule of law, this essay by John Hasness came out, I want, I think in the seventies, 
it's been around for a while. So, um, it's just, I've noticed that more people have started talking about it. And part of that Mm -hmm. could be because Michael Malice's anarchist handbook just came out this last year and he reprinted the essay um, in that, that could be part of it. So it could be a little bit of a recency bias thing, but I think people are, I think they're starting to see this idea. Well, we did an entire episode on hypocrisy where, you know, we're seeing the, the, Governors are telling everyone they have to wear masks and then they're getting photographed out at the French laundry yeah. or whatever the hell that place was. <laughs> um, or the, you know, the Met Gala where they're AOC and everybody's walking around with no masks on and then they're, you know, they're posse of servants is following them around with all their masks on and everything. It's like, there's definitely a double standard. So I think it's becoming, I think it's getting more into the front, into the forefront. Also, you know, we're, we, we also did an episode on decentralization and one of the, Mm -hmm. one of the ways of fixing this rule of law problem is to just have decentralized legal systems or legal systems that effectively compete with each other. And that's something that's big in the um, like the anarcho-capitalist communities, ideas that you would have private sure. legal systems that you could go to. We had that the decentralization episode with Jeremy and Myron, um, and that was one of the concepts that we talked about is like the the improvement that we would have in the social structure by having decentralized competitive systems. Uh, yeah. Essentially, competition has the way of forcing morals onto the system that don't exist mm. in a monopolistic system. So be on the lookout for my articles when they finally come out. Hopefully I'll explain better <laughs> in writing than I did, uh, I, did spoken. Well, I was going to say, I, I think what, what I took away from your um, from what you just shared was, first of all, this concept of myth uh, that is, you know, background wise, where, where does that language come into to my mind? It, it goes back to in uh, middle school, reading about the myths of the the Greeks and the Romans, right? You think about the the, <laughs> the, the terrible creatures that came out of, um, you know, uh, the, the battles that happened there, like the Cyclops or something. Right. Um, and and okay. a lot of those myths were used to explain things in the world. Like where did fire right. come from? Yeah. Yeah, and if you if you if you take that level up and think about or take the imagination out, it's many many of the ideas around us are uh, really they are just a myth. A, a border, a, a country's border, is a myth. It's it's an it's a concept that we've we've all agreed to exist, but in reality, there's nothing from nature that's going to tell us here is a line, and when you're on this side, you're in this this country, and when you're in this side, you're you're not right. Um, that's that's entirely. Uh, fictitious and made up, and so that that's that conception and like knowing that you're you're being told a myth and knowing that it's agreed upon myth or that society has agreed upon it at some point is a very impactful concept to many people that are just accustomed to say no, that's the rule of law. Everyone agrees to it, and and of course it's it's been that way because someone agreed to it. It's um, it, that's that's what I took as, as you were sharing that. I think that's an extremely powerful concept. And then you apply it to the rule of law, it, it doubles in power. Right. And it demonstrates just how arbitrary of a system we're in when mm-hmm. a president can just defy the Supreme Court. I know that Joe Biden, he apparently had a, uh, a legal scholar, a law school professor who interpreted the law himself and thought it was constitutional. But remember, law professors do not interpret the law in our system. The Supreme Court yeah. does. So it doesn't matter who you have on your side. If the Supreme Court says it's unconstitutional, it's unconstitutional. Right, right. Definitely uh, hit me up with questions, folks. I <laughs> Obviously, I'm not feeling like I explained that very well, and it's still a concept that I'm uh, fleshing out. But yeah, hit us yep. up with questions and comments if uh, anybody wants more information on that one. Absolutely. All right. Well, 
I will share then my first concept that uh, really hit home with me. And I, I actually think it's related to what we're talking about here, uh, because when we think about mask mandates or vaccine mandates, uh, the there's there's a couple there's there's a lot of ideas that kind of go into the idea of, of vaccine mandates as an example where uh, people are asking are they are they useful are they good are they morally correct um, and I I struggle with them um, I am absolutely opposed to vaccine mandates uh, I think I've shared that on this this uh, podcast several times but uh, to me they they run in, entirely counter to the idea of your bodily autonomy. And, and I think the arguments suggesting, well, you don't have a right to impose on my uh, health um, doesn't, doesn't really hold water uh, when we have uh, shots, um, vaccines that um, are shown to have some efficacy against a disease. Um, but putting that aside, there, there's a there's a concept that's embedded with the idea of, you know, not not only morally are vaccine mandates correct, but are they are they actually useful in achieving our goal? And there was a discussion earlier this year uh, from a online doctor or a doctor who who shares videos online named Doctor Z. And he talked about this idea of reactants. And I'm just going to read the definition I have. It's an unpleasant motivational arousal reaction to offers, persons, rules, or regulations that threaten or eliminate specific behavioral freedoms. So the the key there is that when your behavioral freedoms are are limited, so in this case with the vaccine, uh, not having bodily autonomy, uh, you can have this very negative sensation and it's going to create a series of, of, of mental blocks to you even considering. So if you're someone who, who didn't get the vaccine for some reason and now you're being forced into doing it, it's going to create a, a very strong psychological reaction, right? This this idea of reactance is that you're, you're, you're physically going to have this revulsion, right? Um, because you don't like your freedom being curtailed. And so I, I thought about that concept and just how valuable it is in understanding what should be part of our discussions. You can have very academic discussions about the morality of something like a vaccine mandate. You can also have discussions about the efficiency or efficacy of actually doing a vaccine mandate. But if we don't talk about the psychological impediments to doing that. So why people aren't doing what they're doing. And then also the second order consequences. So it's someone, you know, having reactants when being told that they have to have a vaccine. And this is, I'm just using the vaccine as a, as an example, because it's, it's so top of mind for 2021. Um, when you have that kind of question, well, what is the reactance? How are people going to react to this? What is the resentment that they're going to have against uh, the people that force them into doing this? Uh, it, it's going to create, um, it's going to create a different set of questions and ideas, and it's going to create a richer dialogue. So I, I wish that reactance as a concept, the, the observation, the, the the knowledge that people do have a very stern reaction, particularly in countries where liberty and freedom are valued, such as the United States, they do have a reaction to their freedoms being curtailed and behavior being curtailed, knowing that should be part of the dialogue. And so I, that, that to me was one of the, the key ideas. It, it was actually naming a phenomenon or, or a driver of phenomenon that I observed. So that's one of my top ideas for 2021. Yeah, that one's, that's pretty amazing. I, I read something earlier or recently, I should say, where I think it goes along with the same idea. And what they were saying is that our risk tolerance changes depending on whether something is voluntary for us 
or we're being forced to do it. So if we're being forced to do it, our risk tolerance is much lower. So in the case of the vaccines, if someone's saying you have to get this vaccine, our tolerance for any risk that would come from taking those vaccines, such as uh, hypertension, myocarditis, whatever, is much lower. Whereas if we're being left to make the decision on our own, we're more than willing to take a risk um, if if we assess um, that it's worth it. And it, it sounds a, a lot like, yeah, it, it sounds a lot like what you're talking about here uh, is that we just have this aversion to being, we, we have an aversion to authority. It almost is what it sounds like. So, yeah, I mean, this is to, to sum it up, this is the middle finger that people want to give to authority. Um, and you, you can look at parts of the world where they've had more success. So they've had higher vaccination rates, if that's really your goal. And in many of those places, there's there's higher levels of trust of the the authority to begin with than what we're experiencing in, in the United States. Um, there is different measurements of how to actually get people to, to engage with people, right? So the 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 I would say the 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 tactics that are being used to actually communicate with them. And I'm I'm looking at places like Denmark um, uh, and, uh, I believe it's, it's Finland, maybe even Sweden has, has high levels. I haven't looked at the, the rates recently. And of course the rates are now going to change as people are no longer actually considered vaccinated because their vaccination status has expired. But, uh, this was several months ago where they were, they were talking about some of the success rates in Scandinavia. So there's other factors that you should be asking about, uh, when you think about why people are going to have this reactance, uh, why, why, what's going to cause it. And then as you're saying, the, the risk threshold, the, the psychology of people, I, I don't think we've actually, we actually know what's going to, what this is going to look like in 18 months from now in terms of people's frustration and anger, uh, let alone for all the other reasons like school closures. So again, just, just I, I'll, I'll stop there because I know we have some other ideas we want to talk about, but I, I think it's a really, really good one. Well, and I just, one thing that came up when you're talking is I could see this being a negative feedback. Um, you already have a waning trust in the authorities. So the authorities can't convince you to voluntarily get the vaccine. So they force you to get the vaccine, which erodes your trust in the authorities even more. And yeah. they don't seem to consider that when they're coming up with these ideas. So that's, yep. yeah, that's very interesting. So uh, what is your next big idea that you had out of 2021? I want to go back to me. So speaking of risk assessment, basically, if we want to say it uh, less intellectually, it's that people suck at assessing risk. Um, but <laughs> true, true. To be a little little nicer, I guess, to my fellow humans, it's uh, just the, the importance of risk assessment, base rates, and asking the right questions. Uh, so we've alluded to base rates pretty frequently on the podcast. I don't know if we've ever taken the time to really explain it. But when we're talking about something like COVID or just, you know, smoking or, you know, any decision that you make, we, we have to go through this process to assess what the risk is. I mean, it's part of our decision-making process. And if we're not adequately assessing the risk, then we're going to make bad decisions. And I think this has been mitigated a lot in our current society where we've got, we've got hospitals, doctors, medical technology that <laughs> somewhat <laughs> lessens the impact of bad decisions, let's say. Um, so, you know, if you, if you decide to eat McDonald's every day for your entire life, right, we've got medicines and medical procedures that can help you, you know, not, not recover from that, from the diabetes and whatever heck else you have, but it, we've got medications that can at least help you prolong your life and it can sort of mitigate yeah. those bad decisions. You know, maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe that's one of the problems with, um, 
the paradox of safety is if we implement safety measures or we provide people with these medications, then they're going to be more prone to take risks that they wouldn't take absent those. Um, I'm thinking of the seatbelts, I think, was an example when um, that the number of I think it was when the seatbelt laws were implemented, injuries to the drivers and the passengers in the front seat went down, but injuries to people in the back seat and to pedestrians and bicyclists went up because the drivers got to be, they became more risk tolerant and they started driving yeah, but, less carefully. So, but I'm okay with the bicyclists because they are terrible people on the road. <laughs> terrible yeah. people. Yeah. 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 Go to Boulder. Boulder, Colorado, right? The only ways you're ever going to get the death penalty in Boulder, Colorado is if you're mean to your dog or you run over a bicyclist. Um, those people oh. are crazy. So, uh, okay. Anyway, <laughs> no, I like Boulder. I lived there for a while. It's a good city. Um, so anyway, so when we can't assess risks, then we're refusing to acknowledge that there are multiple risks that we have to try to balance. Um, so we'll just take, take something simple like the masks. Um, say, okay, we want to eliminate the spread of COVID, so everyone has to wear a mask. Well, there's a risk to wearing the masks too, right? We've got reports of children not, um, their IQs actually being stunted, their um, ability to socialize being stunted because they can't see people's faces. So that's a risk. Um, there's risks of heightened anxiety because you're kind of, you know, you're, you're taking those short, deep breaths. You're having trouble breathing through the mask. So that creates anxiety. And I've heard also, uh, Dental problems have been um, have been reported because you're not expelling you, you know the toxic stuff out of your body. I guess you're kind of catching it in that mask and inhaling it back in. So this concept, so we need to understand this concept that you you can't replace all risks with a single risk. We can't just look at one risk and say we need to get rid of this risk and ignore all other risks. So that's that's one of the things. But then also when we acknowledge that there's multiple risks, we need a way to look at them and to compare them to each other and come up with the best framework for, uh, for the decision that we're going to make. One thing that I've, that I've got written down here is like, we need to be aware of that because, I mean, let's just face it, the media, politicians, advertisers, right? They play on this fact that if they present risks out of context, that's going to cause us to react in a certain way right? They're going to essentially be controlling us. So that's why you'll hear a lot about COVID. Oh my God, even one COVID death is too many. We've got to stop this. And oh, by the way, we're going to leave the liquor stores open and you can go buy all the cigarettes you want and still go to McDonald's. You have to be aware of that because when you're making your decision, you still have to factor all of that in. So yeah, there's COVID. That's the risk. But yeah, smoking cigarettes is still a risk too. The other thing to remember is we were talking about earlier, like we all have different risk tolerances and the way we, and, and those risk tolerances can change depending on the situation. So like we said earlier, if you're being told to do something, your risk tolerance is much lower than if you're voluntarily choosing to do it yourself. Yep. And because of that, and you know, someone who is older and, you know, has young children maybe, and has a comorbidity, right? Their risk tolerance to going out and socializing in this COVID world is going to be much lower than someone who's, you know, maybe in their twenties and is healthy and, you know, gets plenty of vitamin D, right? Their risk tolerance may be much higher. So it doesn't make sense in my mind to have a one size fits all solution. Right. People need to be able to assess their own risks and make their own decisions. 
So where base rates come in is base rates can help us assess risk. I saw a headline that was recently, and I, I may now have this 100% correct, but I think the headline was like one out of four hospitals are at 95% ICU utilization or ICU bed utilization. And I, I got to thinking, it's like, man, that, that sounds kind of scary, except that's maybe not. <laughs> you know, it could be scary. I don't know. But yeah. so when we look at base rates, okay, 95% ICU bed utilization. Well, what does that really mean? All that tells us is that 95% of the ICU beds are being used. Okay. It doesn't tell us what the beds are being used for. It doesn't tell us historically what the utilization of these beds runs at because ICU beds cost money. I think I saw an estimate somewhere where it's like $1,000 a day or something for these beds when they're unused is cost, costing the hospital $1,000 a day for these beds to go unused. Um, so I compare it to like an, an airplane, right? An airline wants the airplane to be full because there's a huge fixed cost to flying the airplane from Denver to LA or wherever. So they want to have as many people on that airplane as possible because each additional person, it, there's a variable cost associated, but those variable costs are small. Most of the cost of flying that airplane is the large fixed cost that you have to pay, whether there's one person or 300 people on the plane. And it, so it's the same thing with a hospital, right? They don't want to have a ton of unused ICU beds sitting around. So they're going to try to project what what their usage usage is, and they'll probably give themselves a bit of a margin of error. So my understanding is most hospitals, they shoot for like the low 90% utilization most of the time anyway. And so to hear that the 95%, I mean, it, when you look at it in context to that base rate, it, it, it's not quite so alarming. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's almost like people, um, they've created a false anchor uh, because people don't have... Um, well, I mean, it's the opposite. A false anchor is basically saying, well, the, you know, in your mind, you're saying, oh, this this is really high. Well, what if you found out that that the the on average, it's one out of five that are operating. You know, so so it's only slightly worse, right? We've gone from twenty five to twenty percent. Um, well, they had. Three, so. I think last year I remember seeing an article about some hospital in South Carolina or something. Was it like ninety three percent? Ninety three percent of the ICU beds were being used, and or no, it's like eighty nine percent of the ICU beds were being used. And this was this alarmist article. And then somebody pointed out, well, you know, at the same time last year, ninety two percent of these beds were being used at the same hospital right. before COVID. And it was like, oh, okay. That's an area where the base rates are an example of where the base rates really matter. Another one that I saw recently is um, 75% of the children in the hospital for COVID are unvaxxed. But what they didn't tell you was the base, the base rate you need to look at there is, well, what percentage of children in that city are unvaxxed? Because if it's 75% of the children in the city are unvaxxed, well, then all that ha all you're telling you is that the population of children in the hospital matches the population of the children overall. It's exactly what you would expect. But right. by saying 75%, it sounds incredibly alarming. Um, yeah. And then another base rate to look at in that situation is, well, how many total children are there? If there's 10 total children, well, I guess 75% wouldn't work out for 10. Let's say 100. <laughs> 100 total children and 75 of them are unvaxxed. Okay. So, okay. 75 out of a hundred, that sounds pretty bad, but let's say there's a million kids in the city. So out of a million kids, there's only a hundred in the hospital being treated for COVID. That tells you that your rate of hospitalization is incredibly low anyway. So yeah. does, does, does it really matter? Do you really need to be concerned about that 75% when the chances of you even ended up in the hospital in the first place are quite low? You know, I, as you're describing this, what, what, what comes to mind is you're, you're just, you're sharing examples of how 
real statistics can be manipulated without having to do anything uh, anything interesting with the math behind it, right? You don't have to actually understand all the variables that are used in, a, in, in um, plotting out a bell curve to see exactly. You just gave many great examples of how someone writing an article, writing a headline can use real information and present it in such a way that you as the audience is, is triggered to feel uh, you know, fearful, maybe there's something bad happening. So it's something that, it's a great concept, it really is. It's so powerful, not only just your own risk assessment, but just as you're interacting with all the data around you, right? Right. Um, to, be, to be aware of that. And well, and let's take that 75%, let's flip it around and say the headline was 25% of the kids in the hospital have been vaccinated. Then that's gonna take people and say, well, wait a minute, I thought these vaccinations were so great. Why? Why are 25% of the kids in the hospital vaccinated? You know, it shouldn't it be like 1% less than that. I don't know. So just, just the way you use the numbers, what I like to do is if I re- read an article like that, I like to see, are they giving me percentages, but then are they giving me actual numbers to go along with it? And are they giving me historical context? And right. are they giving me, you know, what information are they giving me? Are they just telling me 75% of the kids are in the hospital are unvaccinated and leaving it to me to draw the conclusion that, oh my God, you know, I have to run out and get my kids vaccinated right now. Right. You know, the last part about that is asking the right questions. That's, that's exactly what I was doing there at the end, right? You have to ask the right questions like, well, why are these kids in the hospital? Are they actually being treated for COVID or are they in because they have a broken leg and tested positive for COVID? You know, um, and, you know, like I said, well, 75% are unvaccinated, but how many total kids are in the hospital out of the entire population? Um, So this is the power of asking the right questions. Like, what does this mean? And then when we talk about the one out of four hospitals, well, are at 95%. ICU bed utilization. Well, that's that's only 25%. That's one out of four. The other beds, right? Hospitals can transfer patients around. So just because one hospital out of four is high doesn't mean that excess capacity can't be moved over to the other hospitals. So why is it such a bit? So why are we looking at, why aren't we just looking at total beds for those four hospitals? Why are we looking at the hospitals individually? Um, yeah. So that's, that's the power of asking the right questions. And unfortunately, you know, we're, we're in a situation now where asking questions get you, get you labeled as a conspiracy theorist. But I, I would really hope that folks listening don't, um, don't let that hold you back. Ask the questions. Yeah. yeah or just get a better tinfoil hat. It's okay. We will, we will, we will okay. the mentally unscripted.com tinfoil hats. Yeah, that's right. That's right. No, I think those are uh, just super powerful concepts, and they're not going to go away. I mean, we 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 may think that they're some of the best ideas from twenty twenty one. They're old; they have amazing context, uh, but just in terms of utility uh, going forward, especially in the area of high data utilization. And what I mean by that is, since COVID hit, we've had data everywhere about the spread, hospitalizations, deaths, deaths by COVID, deaths with COVID country level, county level, we have information coming out of our ears at this point. And you got to be educated on how to ask the right questions. You got to be, and and that's that's really data literacy. And that's what you, I think you're talking about here. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I guess it comes back down to NSA, CCP, who's spying on us and does it matter? There's just so much information (laughs) out there. You, You have to know how to, like I said, ask the right questions. You have to know how to dig into it, look at the other side of the data. And sometimes try to flip the data around. Like I said, instead of saying 75% of the kids are unvaccinated, why don't you say 25% of the kids are vaccinated and see if that changes right. the story a little bit. Yeah, okay. So Absolutely. sorry. I, I, on my two here, I ranted very long. So 
Go ahead. Love and, the rant. Praise yeah. the rant. So go ahead and uh, jump into your next one. Okay. So uh, this was an aha moment for me that it made me realize I was I was in this. We have this concept of modes, which is just sort of you're operating in a certain way. Uh, and then all of a sudden you can be the observer and start to see how you're operating. And it and it's um, it changes your perspective on what's happening. And so I had this happen to me uh, several months again, late into 2021, where I had this this realization that learning skills and learning new techniques, learning new ideas, is powerful, but just as powerful as how you go about studying them, how you go about learning them. And so, what, what do I mean by that? Well, um, let's take the example of photography. Right. So maybe you're someone and you've said, okay, it's 2022. I want to get into photography. Well, how do most people go about doing that? Right. They may go into Google and they search how to, how to be a great photographer. Um, they may go to a library and check out a book, uh, or they may enroll in a course. All of those are very sensible ideas. Right. Um, and then I realized, well, but is that really it? Are those the only ways to learn about photography? Well, then of course, as soon as I ask the question, I go, well, that's, that's, Clearly not true, right? And then, and then I started thinking to myself, well, what are what is it that I actually want to do with photography? So maybe, maybe an example is, you know, I don't want to just take pictures um, just to be good at taking pictures. I actually maybe I want to share these pictures with friends and family. Maybe I I'd love to be able to take pictures at, at weddings. Or uh, in the case, the example that really came to mind is I love uh, I'm in the city of New York City and I love taking pictures of New York City. Okay, and I want to sell those pictures. So all of a sudden, I've, I've you know I brought in the concept of start with the end in mind, which is a, a concept that Scott shared on, on one of our earliest podcasts. Is what is your actual end goal there? And then if you think about it that way, then you could start asking different questions. So before I even go and and ask myself, okay, I'm going to go enroll in a course. Now I know that I want to take pictures of New York City and I want to sell them. I can ask questions like, well, what makes really what are you know, really great selling pictures of New York City. What makes them really great? Uh, what what about them? What has everyone else trying to do that that makes the pictures unsellable, right? And then I could maybe go and find the, the top 10 pictures that have sold really, really well. And maybe instead of trying to ask a bunch of other questions about cameras and lighting, maybe I just try and go into those pictures and try and mimic them, study exactly what worked out for them, the time of day, uh, where the person was was located, maybe the timing of the sale. There's all kinds of questions. And, and what you see there, the example I just gave, I went from, I want to become a photographer to now I'm starting to, to, to find a way in which I could study photography that I'm guessing is pretty different from the way most people think they're going to learn photography. And I think that's just a simple example of how you go about studying a topic really enhances your understanding of it. And that's actually the second point uh, that I was making that I really, I guess I grokked around the time that I, I thought about this is it's really, you know, there's all these normal ways of studying a topic. And the question is, is there a, a vastly different way that's going to really get you to better understand the topic than 99% of other people? Because everyone else is going to do the standard schooling, Google, et cetera. Right. Uh, but the, the other the other point I wanted to make here was this idea of, you know, can you follow a set of instructions like a recipe or can you actually write the recipe? So that that level of familiarity with a skill set, um, that's when you actually know that you flipped. You went from uh, being able to uh, maybe expertly follow the instructions 
to being able to know all the nuances about it. And how you get there, I think, is is asking those questions. It's not just repetition. We, we hear oftentimes about this idea of 10,000 hours, and it creates, I think, a false understanding of what it is to study a topic that somehow we can brute force it by just practicing infinitely, uh, where in fact, there's a real question of how do you get to those 10,000 hours? So that was a concept that for me was was really impactful. Uh, and, and I'll be honest, it, even though I, I had this idea in my head of starting to ask myself, okay, if I've got a new skill I want to learn, how do I go about studying it? Um, I still think my, my mind is trained in sort of traditional modes, right? Of, of where would I go to, to seek out the information rather than coming up with a model in my head of different uh, ways I could explore it. So something to consider, no matter what you're looking at in 2022, don't just say, I want to learn a skill. Think about the end in mind and ask yourself questions about how could you change your, your path to understanding those skills that you want to learn. Um, I think it could be hugely impactful and make you think differently about um, about how you go about your, your learning. That's really good. When you were talking, I was thinking, I mean, this is pretty much what we're trying to do with Obsidian, right? Is we're mm-hmm. trying to use a tool to make learning easier for us. Yeah. Another another plug for Obsidian there, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but, they're getting all of, all of our right. free advertising space. All right. Well, so so that's that's my idea. And I've got one left and I think you have one left for, I, for I 2021. Do. And my last all one right. is very short. <laughs> that's okay. I didn't exactly discover this in 2021, but I started using it more in 2021 and I discovered how much how beneficial it is. And that's kinesiology tape. And that's the funky looking cloth tape that you see a lot of athletes wearing um, at the Olympics and stuff. And I was dealing with um, some chronic elbow pain last year. So I started putting the tape on. I had some laying around from when I had tried it before and I started wearing it. And believe it or not, I mean, it really worked. So I went down the rabbit hole a bit on it and I started using it for other things on my knee. Um, actually, I have some on my knee right now. That's what I'm dealing with is a sore knee. And um, yeah. For I those just, listening, I, Scott actually looks like a mummy. He's entirely wrapped. Yeah. <laughs> and kinesiology tape. Yeah. So, and it's pretty interesting because of it, what it does is it, it apparently like pulls this the skin and the muscle up away from the body a little bit and creates extra space to help the blood flow and it can actually make the area feel better but um, yeah I've tried a lot of different things I've tried um, I've got one of those tens devices you know the electronic stimulation and I've tried um, of course stre- tens, is that what Bruce Lee used to, to pump up his- uh, it could be because <laughs> okay. I mean some people do try to use it for exercise that's one of the one of the settings on it, I guess, or one oh, of the okay. programs you can run is that, yeah, it's like the, the little electrodes, you stick it on your body and it just sends little electrical signals into your muscle and kind of causes it to twitch. So, I mean, outside of stretching, but sometimes stretching, you know, if you're talking about uh, an, a joint like your elbow, it can be kind of hard to stretch. You can try to stretch the muscles around it to maybe make it work, move a little uh, more freely and not be as restricted. Um, But yeah, the taping, yeah, definitely. um, I'm on the kinesiology taping bandwagon now. Pretty soon I'll look like an Olympic athlete with the the tape all over the place. And, you know, I'm going to try to tape it, put the tape on my head to see if it makes me any smarter, but I don't know if that'll, that'll work, but we'll try it. (laughs) I, I think it's worth trying. So um, who do you think is, I mean, is it anybody who's got any muscular or, uh, joint pain is, is a good candidate to try and experiment with it? How, how do you, how do you go about, is it, is it really just, you know, experimenting with your own body or there, uh, you know, certain techniques that you found to be useful? 
Yeah, so there's um, there's websites all over the place that show you the the best ways to tape um, certain areas of your body and certain types of pain. Um, so it, I usually like for my knee, I just went out and I searched for um, kinesiology tape knee, and I found a lot of websites. And surprisingly, it's fairly consistent. Um, the methods of taping them seem to be pretty tried and true at this point. I think yeah. this stuff, it first got popular. It was the one volleyball player. I can't even remember her name. The one beach volleyball player for the U S like, yeah, I don't know, like I, 15, 16 years ago at the Olympics. Um, right. gosh, I can't even remember her name now. She was wearing it. And I, so I think a lot of people were st- started asking questions about it. And I think it kind of blew up after that. And I've heard some people criticize it and say it doesn't work, but eh, I'm having luck with it. So, yeah. So you folks, you got some soreness. Definitely don't do your mobility, do your stretching, do all that stuff. Cause that's just got huge benefits. But, um, if you need a little extra something, then try the kinesiology tape. All right. You were here yet another plug for a tool that, uh, <laughs> that we're not being paid for. Um, that sounds, that sounds super beneficial, especially as everyone gets out of uh, lockdown mode in 2021. And now they want to start getting, starting their, their fitness going for 2022. You got to know how to stay healthy. Right. And do not wear the tape as a mask. Okay. <laughs> it's probably, <laughs> probably a little hard to breathe through it. All right. Okay. All right. So my, my last idea for 2021 is, uh, I, I don't think I, it's it's my term or it's original term, but I'm calling it the competency crisis. And I had this sensation every time I turned on the news or saw a piece of news um, relative to, to policymaking globally around things like COVID, uh, around things like energy. And then it really came to mind when I saw the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, where I started to think to myself, what is, wait, wait, what is wait, wait, really wait, wait, hang, going hang on? Hang on. You're, you're, you're calling that incompetent? <laughs> uh, I am. I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to stand out. I'm going to put my neck out here and call that incompetence. <laughs> I, I hope you have a very solid argument backed up with data and evidence to support that. Just, just shooting from the hip there. Maybe, maybe it's the tanks, the guns, the, the, the thousands of people left there after, after two decades of helping out our people. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, uh, the, yeah. Uh, the, the drone bombing of the aid worker that was supposedly yes. a terrorist. Yeah. And the killing of yes. his children. Yeah. Um, and we're uh, Scott and I are only laughing because you have to laugh through the pain of the anguish and the terror of what you witness on uh, videos and TV. But I, I think by all accounts, yeah. When we talk about the absurdity of 2021, this is probably one of the top, <laughs> the top contenders for the most absurd, yeah. uh, the most absurd um, thing that happened. You know, uh, the the president is is on the TV and says, "Well, we could have never anticipated what had happened." And of course, you know that that. Anybody who's even slightly familiar with uh, military policy knows that they're running multiple scenarios, or at least they should be, to understand what happens if, you know, what if kind of statements. But to rather than focus on just one of the examples, uh, we kind of look at this broadly. And, and I think it's, it's not unique to the United States. Examples I just shared uh, show um, our incompetence coming from our bureaucracy. But you're seeing it at, at levels across nations all, all across the country, as well as institutions that are, that are uh, going across multiple nations like the UN or the WHO. And so I feel like what we're seeing is that these bureaucracies and the way in which they're operating is being stressed in a way that they're, they're unfamiliar with. And as that stress comes in, so maybe whatever issues they were supposed to address um, over the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years that have been very well known 
uh, now they're having these these new pressures put on them, and they're and they're failing the constituents that they're they're intended to to actually serve. And so if you look at things like school closures coming across this country, that's getting a lot more airtime uh, now in 2022 than it did in 2021 or, or 2020, you're now having discussions about what it means for these kids not to be in the classroom. Uh, and then there should be a set of questions. Well, why, why were we not able to get back to the classrooms? What, what actually failed here? Uh, was the science telling us uh, that the we had sufficient data to understand what it meant, what kind of risk thresholds we were taking for these for these parents, uh, and then you could be asking, well, if we had mitigating uh, tools such as vaccines or shots, were we prioritizing those people so we could get into the right hands of the right people? So the shots in the arms of the teachers, and then how does that entire system and subsystem kind of come together? So I, I think though, if I look at the failures, and I and again, I'll, I'll point to Afghanistan, I'll point to the closure of schools as just two examples. What you're seeing is that the bureaucracy is incapable of dealing with uh, 21st century problems, and and my thinking there is that you've got 20th century architecture for these institutions dealing with 21st century problems and 21st century environments where uh, people are, are more informed, perhaps poorly informed, but they're more informed, more data. They have access to tools to be able to analyze the data. We talked about that earlier, about this concept of risk mitigation, data overflow, being able to see all this information. People are more aware of FOIA requests and be able to get information about schools and, and their communications. People in some ways are, are better informed, have access to better tools to do some work. And so, um, this, this crisis is happening because these institutions are poorly prepared. And I think the incentive structures have changed. I think the, the greatest cause that I come back to is an infiltration of untruth. And I, I know that this is controversial to some, but I see this as institutional capture by bad faith actors, or, or actually they're not even bad faith actors because I'm looking at this neutrally, but they're actors with a certain intention. And that is... Uh, organizations more or less related to things like the CCP. Sounds crazy. What am I what am I really saying when I mention that? Well, when we have institutions that are willing to think about their value structure and not stand up to untruth that comes out of an organization like the CCP, which is done all the time through propaganda, you've actually lose your resistance to bad ideas. And the CCP is is, is actually built on and communism is built on lie. Uh, and I don't mean that in the sense of, uh, um, you know, a lot of people just just hate communism. No, I actually fundamentally first principle believe that communism is built on an untruth, which is which is how that people interact with each other and their their sort of self-interest and how that relates to communal dynamics. So I actually think at the beginning point, you're actually starting from a false premise, which then builds itself to other ideas around um, how we actually need to communicate and organize our resources. How can I organize my resources if I don't have a truthful representation of what the resources are, what demand for it is, and what pricing is? So those are just two examples of how it's built on an untruth. And we have countless examples we can share from different communist projects across the globe uh, where they have false statistics. People think the false statistics are the problem. That actually, in my opinion, isn't the problem. The problem is that you're actually thinking that you need to have false statistics because you can't communicate to people, right? That's and that's again backed up to this idea of the first principle about you you've started out with a lie and you have to you have to continue it. I think that our institutional capture, and we have many, many, many examples um, from you know the, when the WHO was being interviewed and someone mentioned Taiwan and it got cut off, uh, to people being cut off on different interviews 
uh, when, when, you know, discussing Taiwan of all places, right? Uh, the fact that we've had people silenced when they've asked questions about the origins of the virus, the fact that two years on, we still don't have an actual understanding of the, of the origins of the virus, even though uh, I think it was only three months when we had it the first time and it's one of the SARS that came out in the early 2000s. So our system is not capable of dealing with untruth. And so what we're seeing now is a reaction to that. And this is why I think you're going to continue to see a competency crisis because our, our systems are infected. They don't have an immunity. Uh, people like to think that it's voting is actually as an immunity. I don't think that's true. In fact, if if anything, I think the voting mechanism is is really just a sideline. It kind of runs in parallel. It's a separate program. Perhaps it's not even part of the the OS. So um, that's that's the last concept I'll share for 2021. I think I had some other ideas here, but that's the core of it. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I think it, you know I, I'm optimistic about how things can evolve, but uh, I, I am pessimistic about our our, uh, our ability of our institutions and our competency to improve. So I'm curious. Is, you mentioned incentives. So, and I know we talked about this on our Afghanistan podcast, but how much of it is incompetence and how much of it is just corruption or people seeking to make a buck? How much? Can you work that into your model at all? Yeah, it's a great question. And I guess the the, the next question comes, it almost uh, begets another question, right? Which is how does a, a system uh, succumb to corruption? And why does that end up happening, right? Why are the incentive structures not uh, resistant to that that type of behavior if it really is just corruption? And um, and so that that's what comes to mind. And maybe I'm, I'm, I'm putting a lot of that under the umbrella of, of competency. What, what struck me about the withdrawal from Afghanistan was that here we have just an absolute, on every single level, an absolute disaster from the, the, the lives that are lost on the ground, um, the lives that will be lost over the next decade for how we, how we exited, the unbelievable amount of military hardware weapons that were left there. Um, and then the know-how, you look at every single vector and you're going, could the stakes have been any higher? Could the state, and then this is what really, really scratched the surface for me. The stakes could not have been any higher with our withdrawal for Afghanistan. And yet we, we were not able to rise the occasion. So there I think, well, that's corruption would want to keep the animal going just like a drug addict. So continue to withdraw from it. Competency is going to say, you know, at the right time or at the times of, of, of high stress, we need to be able to respond correctly. And, and we weren't able to do it in this moment. We've actually lost the thread on even caring if competency matters. I would say the same thing with, with school closures that are happening right now. Um, the damage that is going to be done to this generation of children is so unbelievably high. You mentioned earlier about the, the idea that we, we see a drop in IQ points. And um, I've, I've heard that mentioned. I, I'm not sure I quite understand the, the, the tie. Um, I mean, I can, I can speculate on what I think that tie may be, uh, but I, I think there's, there's probably various reasons. But the fact that we're actually seeing that, that we know that our future is baked into our, our next generation and we are actively denying them for no, for no apparent reason. I mean, the reasons that I've heard and, and from many, many informed people, uh, I'll keep on bringing up Vinay Prasad, uh, who I think has just done a phenomenal job of sharing his opinions on this and, and talks about just the absolute destruction of these, these school closures. Um, it, it really is. I mean, we're at the highest stake moment and the competency just doesn't seem to matter, right? 
And again, democracy, the ability to vote hasn't seemed at all to act as immune response to actually flush out the system, these, these bad, bad ideas. So certainly corruption plays a role. Um, but I think that the valuation or the value around competency is actually higher. Uh, and the fact that we've just lost it and inability to actually matter at the most crucial times is, uh, tells me that it's, it's more about um, a system that just doesn't uh, operate on competency any further uh, anymore or value that. Yeah, and I think- I know, of, how, how do you think about that with what I shared? No, I think you're right. And one of the problems I see is that there's no accountability. Um, but, you know, I mean, let's just look at masks. Remember when Fauci said, don't wear masks? And then when he about faced on it, he said that he was just telling a noble lie. Well, I mean, he still lied and he yeah. favored one group of people over another. And there was just, there, there was no accountability for it. He just said, well, mm-hmm. yeah, I lied. I had a good reason and, and went on and just no acknowledgement that doing something like that destroys your credibility. No matter how noble it is, it means the next time you say something, there's going to be some people sitting there saying, well, he lied about the masks. I understand why he did it, but is he lying about this now? Is he lying about the vaccines? Is he lying about ivermectin or whatever? Is he lying about vitamin D? So, and and just all the news, um, the news uh, about the Covington, the Catholic Covington Catholic kids, um, you know, there was no accountability when when all the journalists got that incredibly wrong. There was no accountability. Um, although I guess Nicholas Sandman is pretty much set for life now from the settlements that he's gotten <laughs> for from generations and generations. To but but yeah. the individual, I mean, even after the full tape came out, there were still journalists who were doubling down on their original claims that this kid is a a racist, you know, Trump supporting MAGA hat wearing. Um, monster, even though the evidence was out there and there was just no accountability as people, they didn't get right. fired. They weren't forced to go onto their platforms and apologize or anything. So when we don't punish incompetence, you're going to have incompetence, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a really good, good point. Um, another question I have is, is there sort of what we were talking about yesterday? We were joking around about is like, there's just so much news out there now that it's getting to be difficult to parse it and to figure out what is true, what's not true, what's missing from this news report, what what's missing from that news report, what information do we not have that we need, um, mm. things like that. So are we seeing just too much information? Is it getting to the point where people can't process everything that's coming in and that's leading to some incompetence? Um, yeah, good question. So, so more information overload. And- right. And so I'm going to say like my first semester of law school, I, I did okay, but I didn't do great because I, when I was studying for finals, right, I went overboard and tried to know every little rule and every new little nuance of every little rule. And it just ended up being too much information. And I was having trouble getting it, you know, spitting it out and on the exams and remembering everything. And then my second semester, when I got it through my head that the professors, they were just looking for the major high level rules. They really weren't looking for tons of nuance. And so I was able to get away from the details and the minutia and just Mm. focus on the high level concepts. I started doing better. Um, So I wonder if that's the same thing here is that, you know, we end up focusing on things that don't really matter, but maybe they sound sexy you know, yeah, right. um, when we should just um, really be focusing on the high level, like, yeah, know, like it's not, well, how do we get out of Afghanistan while, you know, I don't know, 
doing it as cheap as possible and as, you know, meeting a particular timetable when maybe the question is like, how did we just get out, out of Afghanistan? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's a great question. And, and, you know, there's so many different levels of the hierarchy you can look at, right? So if you look at the, the highest level of decision makers that are in that structure, uh, the president, the generals, what should they be looking at versus uh, way lower, right? So representatives, so people like us that are citizens um, that have a stake in the sense that our taxes, our men and women uh, go there. And then, you know, our, our, um, how we think about our global standing and what, what how we should operate in the world, right? Uh, whether or not we should be uh, enforcing our military uh, in places around the world. Um, you know, what should we be focused on? Right. And, um, I, 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 I do think at any point of that hierarchy, you are going to have to make a decision about what details are too fine grain, right? What's the resolution you have to see the problem. The, the, the part that I struggle with a little bit is that the, um, the, this idea that it should, it should be so simplistic for, um, the, the military, right? So maybe if they simplify it down, they're, they're being too fine grain. Um, that's that is part of the job description, right? Um, you know, if I if I think about NASA putting rockets into space, if if the rockets they say, well, we got it off the launch pad, but it blows up in the ozone, that's that's not successful, right? Um, if we get it into to space and we needed it to be there for thirty days, but it had to come down after three, that's unsuccessful. Um, there's there's a lot of considerations that need to be part of that discussion. And if you're going to entrust an organization such as NASA, or in the case of SpaceX, with objectives, um, it is part of their responsibility to go after that. I, I don't think I can take that from them, or I can excuse that. And in the uh, war is messy, right? I, I saw a, a post from Nate Silver, uh, and for those I think uh, who, who are unfamiliar with Nate Silver, I believe he's, he's a statistician. He's become very well known in certain circles over the last two decades as as being a pollster and looking at the results of of elections and being able to predict them with some accuracy. Although I think his last two <laughs> the last two election cycles he wasn't very wasn't very spot on, but. Uh, anyways, he's he's an interesting character from that perspective. But he said something to the effect of, you know, I can forgive a lot of policymakers for bad policies because hey, they make mistakes and the world's messy. And you know, I I think there's some there's some truth to that, right? We should ask ourselves what is the expectation we have of people that make mistakes because mistakes are going to be made. So to and 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 similar to the how we started the conversation, this concept of base rates, right? This this you know. In the United States, we've improved our health so much. We've had so many, so much better outcomes in terms of health that when something like COVID hits, we're struggling to understand how people are going to die. That we're going to have to deal with a pandemic, and it's it, it creates this um, this idea that mistakes can't be made or that they shouldn't be made. And I think that's that's the other side that we just need to be cautious of. Um, if you're in the position of power, you're you're a decision maker. It's possible you're going to make the wrong mistake. Um, because the world is, still, is 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 ugly and messy, but I think about how we go about it in terms of what you talked about accountability, um, some level of truth that's being able to be shared. Uh, someone who can get up and and actually acknowledge that they've made a mistake, um, which goes back to this concept of accountability. I think that goes a long ways to uh, us being able to address some of those those concerns. It's not perfect, 
You know, you you could look at Afghanistan, and, and in my mind, our, our withdrawal was uh, was just one end of the spectrum in terms of how it was managed. Um, and it could have just gone, uh, even if it had gone fifty percent better, it would just had a huge impact, right? And, and then, of course, what we heard instead was, "No, we can't do that." Um, I've heard I've heard some discussions uh, about how. Well, Biden was up against the military industrial complex. And basically, if he, you know, they thought he was going to fold on the timeline. And therefore, they just, they said, well, screw it. We'll just wait for him to fold because we'll say we're not ready. And, and in order for him to actually have the power to actually leave Afghanistan, he had to do what he did. Now, think about that statement if that's even true, right? That the fact that the military industrial complex was saying we care so little about the men and women, about the military risk of what could happen if we don't manage this correctly, that we're going to force this into a, a duel of this kind. I mean, that to me, I'm, I, you can call that corruption. I'm calling it incompetency um, because the stakes are so high. And um, so I, I think I maybe got off a little bit there, but I, I do think I, I'm going to put responsibility on those people to think through as many of those scenarios as possible. I think we we have to have a, an arrangement. If this is if this is the responsibility that we give them, there has to be arrangement that you took on that responsibility, and when it goes wrong, it's on your shoulders, right? Um, I don't think they get a pass, and I don't I don't think our military and our executive leadership should get a pass on what's happened for COVID uh, on our energy policy. Uh, the future of our, 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 you know, environmental energy policy, the future of our, our military integrations and our dealings. I mean, I could go on a list forever, and and uh, I certainly just can't give them a, a pass. You, you, I guess I just shared a lot there. Do you think that's even a reasonable way of looking at it? Am I missing something? No, I think you're you're onto something there. What's disturbing is the notion that. There's a group of unelected people who feel like they can just disobey orders from the president and do what they want, because then, well, what what good is there to have a democracy then when there are people who have enough power and influence to just not do what the president tells them to? And this reminds me of the issue uh, with Trump when he tried to order the troops moved out of Syria. And then we found out later that they didn't actually move the troops. They just kind of messed with the numbers a little bit to make it look like they were withdrawing the troops. And, you know, at the end of the day, the democracy isn't going to work. I mean, you need an informed citizenry in order to have an effective democracy. But then the people who get elected have to be able to actually carry out the mandate of the people. And when you have unelected people who are just taking it upon themselves, to veto those orders, um, that's problematic for me. And that's an area where competence is a big issue. Because even if the military industrial complex, even if they're the most highly competent people, there's still, there's an incompetence in the fact that they are not honoring the democracy. They're not honoring the will of the people who elected this person who said that we're going to get out of Afghanistan. Yeah, I I, I agree. And actually, this makes me think of the conversation we had with Myron uh, a few, a few casts back about sort of how you have the, the, the actual structure of your government, but then you have what's built around it organically and starts to grow, right? The, the military industrial complex did not look the, the way it does today, a hundred years ago, right? And the same can be said for many of our institutions, uh, different parts of our bureaucracy in the United States and how it's changed and grown and morphed. And we don't have accountability or line of sight into that. And that I think is breeding part of this competence. And that's why I keep on saying 20th century. I, I compare the two centuries is that this, this legacy system uh, and subsystems have been developed over a uh, hundred years 
have have entrenched themselves, but they're not they're not really incented to upgrade, right? They're incented to sustain, but they're not really incented to upgrade to deal with with the challenges that you're facing today. And 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 because of that, then we see these reactions, we see the the outcomes that we see, uh, and and I think you know maybe that's this is something we can consider for even future discussions about this. What, what happens in an evolutionary cycle of, of governance, right, uh, where you have institutions at one point are shining very brightly, uh, perhaps serving people very well, that at some point just um, they erode because they don't actually have a, a an end of date limit, right? That if you think about the programming, the programming doesn't have an, an ending in it, right? It's just assumed to, to always go on, which is um, one of the main criticisms many libertarians have of, of uh, bureaucracy. And um, it's just that it, it has no end limit. It has no, no time in which it's seen to no longer serve a purpose. Um, I mean, I'll give one lasting example because I know we've, we've been this one pretty good. When all cars are autonomous, all cars on the road are autonomous. Will the DMV still exist? And I'm going to say the DMV will last very, very long. I don't know how. I don't know what its new function will be, but I'm positive the DMV will be around after every single car is driven by a machine. Yeah. Well, trust me. <laughs> 10 years in the government bureaucracy, self-preservation is a very powerful driving force <laughs> with those people. They will figure out ways to keep their jobs. Um, so... and. and- you know, to be fair to them, that's a natural inclination. That is, that is, that we're, we're ignoring a basic first principle truth when we say, well, I don't understand why that's the case. Well, that is the case. And of course, they're going to want to sustain that. If, I mean, if you moved your family to Maryland or, or other parts of Virginia to be do some work for the government and you're, you're there for three years and then all of a sudden you, you, you hear that it's possible that you could be there another seven while your kids are in school or you're going to have to leave and maybe go back to Colorado or California and uproot them, which are you going to try and sustain? I mean, put out a personal level. Come on. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, well, and that's the so, idea of the altruistic, you know, tireless government servant is, is bunk. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but I mean, they all have their, they're all driven by self-preservation and their own desire to succeed and maximize their, uh, their own wealth and profit or, you know, whatever. Um, and they, you know, most, I don't want to say all of them, but most of them are not going to put the constituent first. They're going to put themselves first. Right. Yeah. That's just, that's just acknowledging reality. That's not, that's at least in my mind, that's acknowledging reality. That's not being negative at all. So, all right. That takes two. That took us a while. Uh, that takes us through our, our top five thoughts of 2021. We had a couple of tools. We had a couple of ideas. You know, uh, Scott, is there anything else that you wanted to share before we wrap up? Nope, not right now. Um, this one ran pretty long, but I think it's a good one. So, yeah. and well, we, we yeah. missed last week. We took a break last week. So we're giving you guys a little extra this week to, because we know you missed us. <laughs> you miss us. You miss our, uh, our voices or smiling faces that you don't see, but you imagine when we speak. Um, well, listen, we, we would love to hear your ideas. What were your top five ideas or even your, for your number one idea that you took away from 2021? And, uh, and what are you thinking about for 2022? I, I think there's a lot of, um, as you said, we're, we're optimistic that uh, 2022 will be less absurd. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So um, wherever you are, be safe, be good. Go find us on mentallyunscripted.com. Leave your thoughts, leave your comments. 
um, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you are. But uh, mentallyinscript.com, our Substack site, which we've now shared many, many times, that's where you can find us. You can let us know uh, what we're missing, uh, where our thinking is wrong, and, and also download our great guide um, on how to never argue again unless you want to. Yes, that's right. It is a gift from us to you that saves you countless hours and thousands and thousands of dollars in therapy all with a beautifully packaged PDF. You can't get much better than that, can you, Scott? No, no. And when you consider the costs of hiring a defense attorney for your murder trial after you, you know, you kill your crazy Uncle Sam or whatever, uh, you know, just this is the gift that keeps on giving. It will save you so much time and and heartache in life. So definitely. And all you have to do is give us your email address. Simple, simple. That's it. That's it. That's it. So listen, not only are we saving you money, we're keeping you out of jail. Go go check it out. We'd love for you to download it. And, and uh, we promise not to sell your email address to the porn hucksters. No, no, them or the NSA or anybody else. We're keeping <laughs> well, it for ourselves. Well, <laughs> well, the NSA has it anyway, so yeah, that's, <laughs> they're that's probably not true. looking to buy it, but yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, good. Be, be good, everyone, and uh, we'll talk to you real soon.